back to Brain Buzz with your host Kyle and Drake. Uh, today we're going to be beginning a two-part series on third gender and gender sexuality research uh, brought to us by the Paul Vasey Lab at the University of Lethbridge. Today we're joined in part one by Scott Semenina. Scott, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, why don't you give our listeners a little brief intro about who you are, where you come from, and uh, and we'll dive right into the uh, right into the good stuff. Yeah, for sure. So my name, as uh, as Kyle said, is Scott Semenina, and uh, I grew up in central Alberta, uh, just a little bit west of Edmonton. And uh, I grew up in a small town and decided that after uh, growing up there, I should move to the city and do a degree. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I, uh, I kind of enrolled in the science program and uh, quickly got bored with that. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I took a year off and I, uh, I swung a hammer, worked for a general contractor, and the only classes that stuck for me were psychology. So that's what I went back to do. And uh, I, I did my psych degree, my undergrad at McEwen University in Edmonton. And uh, while I was doing my undergrad there, I got involved in the honors program and kind of got a taste for research and, uh, and that world. And then uh, I'm obviously skipping a few steps in between, uh, but was introduced to, uh, to various people uh, who now are very important for my, my grad school education. So I, uh, after I finished my undergrad degree, I worked for the government for a while at uh, a residential treatment facility for kids in government care. And then uh, I moved down to Lethbridge to do my uh, master's degree, and now I'm in my PhD working with Dr. Paul Vasey. And we study, um, we study same-sex attraction in males, and we use cross-cultural models to, to kind of tease apart some important uh, pieces of that, uh, that puzzle. So, uh, <laughs> Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what we might learn today? Uh, what are you going to be helping us uh, sift through and sort out? Yeah, um, so there's lots of areas or, or lots of directions that a conversation could go. Um, probably something that came across in kind of your screener questions and, and, and discussions leading up to, to sitting down to actually talk is um, that male same-sex attraction as kind of a, a largely biologically influenced trait um, for, for a male to be same-sex attracted, it doesn't necessarily look the same in all cultural contexts. So there are definitely times when it, uh, it looks different uh, and it expresses in a different way. And that's part of what we study in our lab is, uh, is looking at that. Uh, specifically, we study what are called or often referred to as third gender males in uh, places like Samoa or southern Mexico. Uh, that's where our field sites are. But they also exist in, uh, in other places in the world, in India and Thailand and Nigeria and places like Oman. Uh, so it's it's really geographically widespread, um, and the expression of of male same sex attraction is uh, often heavily changed or moderated by uh, by culture. Bearing that in mind, uh, I think today a lot of our episodes going to center around being able to, as we kind of alluded to, take a step back and understand that in research generally, but also just in in any sort of field, we're we're very ethnocentric and uh, western centric. So. Bearing that in mind, you know, what what do we want to change in terms of the mindset of our listeners? What is something that we want to kind of help teach them and anybody who might be listening? 
Yeah, uh, I, I guess there's kind of a couple ways to, to attack or approach that, that question. The first one is, you know, don't, don't always assume that um, the way something operates in, in uh, another culture is going to map on to what you're familiar with in our culture. Um, so it, we, can't, we can't kind of commit the fallacy of thinking, well, th this is how uh, some subject or some topic operates here in Canada or in the U.S. or, or in Western Europe. And so, therefore, that process is going to work psychologically uh, throughout the world. So basically, we, we shouldn't assume that things that are studied in undergrads in Canada and the U.S. are going to necessarily generalize to non-Western populations. Um, and then on the flip side of that is you don't want to go so far and saying, well, there, there's so much cross-cultural variation that there is no kind of human universals. There, there's nothing that, that unites uh, humanity and everything is just culture and everything is, is kind of culturally created and elaborated. So the, as with most things, you, you want somewhat of a balance between both of those perspectives. Uh, the ability to look outside your own cultural perspective, uh, but also the ability to recognize and acknowledge uh, a certain thread that, uh, that ties all of us together. That's well spoken. It's, it really does get at the way that you have to approach these things and the way to address that. So Scott, within your area, there's a lot of terms that uh, can be very confusing or things, terms that individuals have heard before, but may not fully understand or 100% or understand. Uh, so we, we obviously, the majority of individuals understand what heterosexuality and homosexuality are. Uh, those are the most common terms in, in Western culture. Uh, but there's a lot of other terms that you use in your, in your research that are, that are less uh, binary, let's say. Yeah, no, e exactly. Could you introduce us to some of those terms and, uh, and kind of ensure that we're all understanding as to, to uh, the, the proper usage of them? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, like Drake said, most people are familiar with heterosexual and homosexual as terms. Um, and I mean, they're, they're perfectly fine terms. I use them often, um, especially when, when just talking with like non-researcher people, like just normal human beings, um, that aren't <laughs> weird researcher types. Like you use normal words. Um, so you don't sound like some scientist, um, <laughs> who can't think, you know, in, in normal terms. Uh, so heterosexual and homosexual are, are obviously common, but uh, what we find uh, when we talk about things cross-culturally, or, or even in our own culture, when uh, we're dealing with topics that start to tease apart things like sexual orientation, is that heterosexual and homosexual are limited. Uh, because they're always in reference to, you know, um, what someone is attracted to in reference to their biological sex. Um, so a male would be homosexual if he is attracted to other males. A female would be homosexual if she's attracted to other females, etc., etc. Uh, so typically, just to, to have some more precision uh, as far as who um, is is attracted to, or, or or who or what someone is attracted to, we use the terms androphilia, uh, which means attraction to adult males, 
or gynophilia, which means attraction to adult females. So in that way, um, both heterosexual women and homosexual men would be characterized as being androphilic or attracted to adult males, and both heterosexual men and homosexual women would be characterized as gynophilic because they are attracted to adult females. Um, so that is kind of uh, one of the basic uh, terminology that we, we tend to use, androphilia and gynophilia. And then we also have to draw distinctions, and most people do this, um, but we have to be really careful to draw distinctions between sex and gender. Uh, so your biological sex is chromosomally determined uh, outside of uh, some more rare forms of, uh, of kind of atypical development where there's differences of, of chromosomes, but it tends to be that if you have an X and a Y chromosome, you're a biological male, and if you have an X and an X chromosome, you're a biological female. And that tends to map on really, really well with gender identity. So biological males tend to identify as men. Biological females tend to identify as women. Uh, but that isn't always the case. Uh, and, and that's part of why um, we need that terminology, because we start to talk about cultures where there's these third gender individuals. So they're biological males who identify not as a man or a woman, but something that's kind of uh, in between or exterior to both of them. It's kind of this third option. Uh, and, and those um, males who are identifying as a third gender, they tend to be androphilic. They tend to be attracted to, um, to biological males, um, like masculine men in the, in the culture. That's awesome. Thank you for the very yeah. thorough definitions and explanations there. I really do like the, the use of androphilia and, and gynophilia uh, because they oppose to, say, heterosexual or homosexual because it, it separates sexuality or sexual orientation uh, and, and sex and gender because heterosexual and homosexual, like you, like you explained perfectly, is you have to know the sex of the individual and then the, the sexual the uh, in sex of the individual yeah. they're sexually attracted to. Whereas yeah. androphilia and gynophilia uh, or gynophilia, it's only about the target, the, who you're sexually attracted to, right? Exactly. So in often it's more useful. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's cutting, it's, it's more direct, especially with the research to be more specific about what you're interested in without having to worry about who the individual is or what, th what they are. It's just another variable to not control for. Yeah. Yeah. And then there, there's obviously, um, you, you could go outside androphilia or gynophilia, and you could say, well, so, someone is attracted to both. They're bisexual. Um, and, and I uh, have tended to, to gravitate towards calling those individuals ambiphilic, um, where like they're, they're kind of attracted or aroused to either male-bodied individuals or female-bodied individuals to varying degrees because there's, there's lots of kind of degrees of, of bisexuality. That's great. Yeah, so, so the amb ambophil ambophilia, uh, does that, that, that does not encompass individuals that would identify as third gender then, right? It's, it's strictly male uh, attraction to either male or female individuals. Typically, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it depends. Um, there, there's lots of debate, uh, some of it pretty acrimonious in uh, as far as gender identities and, and transgender individuals. 
Um, so it depends if you're talking in a Western context or a non-Western context. But yes, primarily like the, the populations that we work with uh, in Samoa and in, in southern Mexico, uh, they, they would be androphilic males who are identifying as belonging to this kind of third alternative gender category. Okay, well, I mean... We have some terminology, we have some definitions, and we have a lot of questions. So, so let's get <laughs> into the work that you're doing. Can you give us an idea of what literature has been done on third gender in, in uh, different cultures? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So there's, um, there's quite a, a wide ethnographic literature that describes these individuals as existing. Um, in, in various cultures. There's the Hydra in India, there's the Katoi in Thailand, um, there is uh, third gender individuals in Nigeria or in the Ivory Coast, uh, even, even they've been described in Oman. Lots of people will be familiar with uh, what are often referred to as two-spirited individuals in uh, North American indigenous cultures, uh, or Burdash, which is kind of, um, it's almost like a bastardization. I, as far as I understand, it, it's a weird term that is almost in some way meant to be derogatory initially, but it, it's, it's trans uh, or it's transferred into being like just a, a pretty commonly understood term referring to two-spirited individuals. Right. Uh, so there, there's quite a wide uh, array of ethnographic descriptions of these individuals, but uh, very little kind of quantitative uh, documentation of, well, what, what exactly is going on here? Uh, what characterizes these individuals, uh, and then in what ways are they similar or different to uh, our conception of same-sex attracted males in in uh, the West, which is typically gay men. So uh, my supervisor, Paul Vasey, has spent a long time uh, alongside uh, his collaborators, primarily uh, Doug Vanderlyn, who is uh, a prof at the University of Toronto, and uh, they, they spent years establishing the phenomenon and, and kind of the, the features of it. And so uh, primarily this work was done in, in Samoa, and now we're starting to do this work in uh, southern Mexico with uh, another guy who's in, in my lab right now named Francisco Gomez. And uh, Paul and Doug established a lot in Samoa as far as these, uh, they're called fafafine, in, uh, in Samoa. So they are third gender males. They identify as not being men or women, but as something different, as fafafine. Uh, fafafine means literally in the manner of a woman. So it's kind of a, a linguistic and cultural nod to exactly what these individuals are. They're almost without fail uh, androphilic they, and exclusively androphilic, like they're only attracted to masculine men. They don't engage in sexual interactions with one another. They, they would be pretty averse to that because they, they tend to have a pretty feminine gender presentation. Uh, and because they're attracted to masculinity, they're, they're androphilic, they're, they're not uh, typically attracted to one another. They instead have, um, have sex with masculine males in the culture and the culture doesn't uh, doesn't tend to consider this to be in any way problematic um they wouldn't think of it as being uh, a homosexual liaison they would think of it as actually being totally fine because these are individuals of two different genders 
So that's kind of the, the ethnographic description of, uh, of the Fafafine, uh, but we, we can extend also uh, these, uh, the research on Fafafine into asking some evolutionary questions about androphilic males and, and male same-sex attraction. Basically trying to understand um, how is it that these individuals are maintained in a population when they don't reproduce directly themselves. So there's been some work done showing that fafafines show uh, preferential treatment towards their nieces and nephews. So they, they essentially are their helpers. Uh, they help their kin uh, and, and not necessarily everyone in the community, but specifically their kin, which could help uh, offset the, their lack of reproduction if they're gonna be directing time and resources to, uh, to their nieces and nephews. Right. So there's that, and then we've also found evidence in Samoa that the female relatives of Fafafine reproduce at a higher rate than the female relatives of just regular straight guys in, uh, in Samoan culture. So that, again, could, could potentially offset uh, this reproductive cost that's incurred uh, by being an androphilic male. You guys are more or less the forefront at this. And you guys are, are pressing forward with all the work, this work. So, uh, yeah. is there anything that you want to talk about more within the, that's not related to your lab work? Um, well, I, I guess I could, I could add to, uh, to that, that now we're starting to follow up a lot of the same work in, in Southern Mexico and, uh, among the Zapotec people who live in the, the Zapotec Isthmus. Uh, which is is right at uh, at the southern kind of point of Mexico, and so they're an indigenous oh. cultural group that have survived. Um, like they they've kind of held on to their culture despite um, the colonization, and it, it wouldn't be accurate to say that they're completely like uh, a natural indigenous cultural group, but they they've retained their language and their culture, and and it's quite strong there. And uh, among the the Zapotec people, they also have a recognized third gender that these androphilic males fit into, and they're called Mushe. And so now we're trying, or we're, we're beginning to replicate a bunch of the work that's been done in Samoa uh, in southern Mexico, and it's telling a pretty similar story. Um, that, uh, you know, they, they likely are more caregiving towards their nieces and nephews, uh, that their uh, female relatives likely reproduce a little bit more, which would offset their direct reproduction um, and kind of help resolve a little bit of the evolutionary mystery. Uh, and the, the biggest, the two biggest pieces of evidence uh, that I think are really, really important in both Samoa and in uh, southern Mexico is that the prevalence rate of Fafafine or the prevalence rate of Mushe are between two to five percent of, of males are, are kind of represented by this category. So about two to five percent of males in Samoa and two to five percent of males in the Zapotec Isthmus in southern Mexico are androphilic and are identifying as belonging to these uh, third gender categories. And that's a, a really important piece of information because that's the exact same prevalence rate that we observe in studies throughout the Western world for the prevalence of gay guys, for, for androphilic males in Canada who identify as being gay. And that prevalence rate, that 2 to 5% is 
astronomically higher than the prevalence rate of transgender individuals in the West, which is, is, is quite low. It's perhaps as high as 0.5 of a percent, although I think that's, uh, that's an overestimate uh, mm. for, for various reasons. And so the, the prevalence of Mushe or the prevalence of Fafafine maps on really well to the prevalence of, um, of gay guys in the West, although the expression of the trait looks a little bit different. Yeah, that's a that's a really high percentage, right? I think I didn't expect that it would be as high. Uh, two to five percent is a very large percentage of the po- of the population when you're thinking about identification as a, a third gender. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And for sure. And, and your point, it's a strong point when you're thinking from a westernized approach. Uh, transgendered would be what we would consider to be the closest relative to what the Fafafini are. I guess is what. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a fair way to say it? Like that's what. We oh, ab- absolutely, and it, it's it's one of those things that I hear, and to me, it's so fair. Like, of of course, that's the the parallel that people would draw, and, and uh, there's obviously some parallels because the fafafine tend to be quite feminine, um, and they they kind of express their their gender identity as feminine, their expressions, their mannerisms, um, their occupational preferences. They tend to be quite feminine, so I think it's it's understandable that people would compare them to transgender individuals in in the West. Um, But it's not entirely an accurate comparison, Uh, although I do totally understand why why people draw it. Yeah, absolutely. I think think we have to draw from what we know from our own cultures to kind of reason with things until we can fully understand and appreciate something as a unique or or different uh, circumstance or phenomenon. Yes, yes, Very, Uh, very much so. Yeah. So, I mean, this is great. You're setting the stage to kind of set up why it's important and what the work you're doing is really getting at. So, so what are you doing? Uh, what are you measuring within these populations? Uh, and what approach are you taking? I know you, you like to take an evolutionary approach to things. I'm pretty loyal to evolutionary psychology. Um, not that I, I don't recognize that it has some, some problems inherent with it uh, and that uh, it's, you know, I don't think it's a perfect discipline, but I, I do think that anything that's going to make sense um, in psychology ultimately has to reckon with evolutionary theory. Uh, it has to jive in some way. It has to make sense um, in that framework. So, so I'm always going to have uh, an evolutionary kind of stance uh, going forward. But Specific to my PhD, um, we're we're not so much asking kind of structural evolutionary questions. You know, what are the causes of male sexual orientation? You know, what what causes male androphilia? How could male androphilia be maintained in a population even though they don't reproduce directly? Um, those kinds of questions. Uh, now we're we're looking more at things that are are addressing. What's the consequence of having these individuals in a population? So they exist, and and that's really interesting. And then what uh, kind of what follows from that? Uh, I mentioned earlier that these mushe or or fafafine they tend to be attracted, or they are attracted to masculine males in the culture, and they often engage in sexual interactions with these masculine males, uh, who otherwise would be heterosexually identified and say that they're attracted to women. 
So in, in Samoa in, in particular, you have this group of third gender individuals who don't interact sexually with one another. They instead interact uh, sexually with masculine men, uh, masculine men who would often uh, just as likely or, or even preferentially sleep with a woman, uh, a, a biological woman. And so what this creates is kind of a unique uh, situation where in, in a cultural context like Samoa, you could have a fafafine and a woman competing with each other in a mating context for access to the same um, male. And uh, this is, is something that doesn't really have a lot of biological precedent in the literature. Um, there's, there's not very many people who would acknowledge that a male and a female in the same species could compete over the same sexual target. Uh, typically, the mate competition literature focuses on male-male competition and then female-female competition. And then emerging from that competition, the mate choices that happen across a, a male and a female of the, of the species. So we don't tend to think about... Um, human females and human males as as competing with one another for the same sexual targets uh primarily because in the west gay guys uh they sleep with gay guys and um so women tend to perceive gay guys as not having ulterior motives the gay guys aren't you know secretly trying to to get them into bed and they also have different targets um of of their affection and so they're they're deemed kind of safe um because they're they're not a genuine you know competitive threat and i think that's really valid in uh in a western context and there's a guy named eric russell who does a lot of really cool research um kind of teasing apart these male um, or these gay male and heterosexual female friendships and the trust that is, is built between them. But I don't think that that uh, trust is necessarily going to occur in a context like Samoa or a context like uh, the Zapotec Isthmus in southern Mexico, where you do have these uh, androphilic males competing with females for sexual access to, to men. This competition with the the males and the women are the the uh, fefefine or the mushe uh, with the females. That competition for the affection of the males is kind of what you're getting at with your work, then. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, like, we there's all kinds of questions you can ask about what's the consequence of having fafafine in a culture in Samoa or having mushe in the culture. Um, one of them can be, what's the impact on male sexual orientation? These these uh, heterosexual or gynophilic males who are engaging in se sexual interactions with uh, fafafine or mushe. Uh, one of the other questions that we can ask and that's built into to what I'm doing for my PhD is, what's the consequence as far as competition between these third gender males and women in the culture? Because they're both kind of vying for the attention and uh, the uh, sexual and romantic uh, att uh, attention of uh, of men in the culture. So we're gonna we're gonna get at this quite a few different ways. 
Um, mm-hmm. there, there's kind of a, a real mixture of methodologies that I'm using um, in, uh, in my PhD. And so there's studies that will be done in Samoa, studies that are done in Mexico, and studies that are also done in Canada. So the first thing is kind of um, just establishing that this does indeed happen. So we, we did that uh, qualitatively. We went, uh, and when I say we, I mean my supervisor, who is amazing, he went to Samoa and he asked uh, a little over 100 women uh, whether or not they'd ever experienced a time in their life where they competed um, with a, a fafafine for the uh, kind of sexual attention of a man right. or the romantic attention of a man. And a lot of them had, um, right? At least uh, I'd have to look at the the numbers. I could have done that beforehand. Um, <laughs> That's okay. But uh, at, at least around fifty percent of women said, "Oh yeah, that that happened." And then oh, so we a have a bunch. That's a very common occurrence. Then. It yeah, it's 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 not uncommon at all. Um, and so now we have um, kind of a rough prevalence estimate of how often does this occur. And then we also got stories from those same women. So we asked uh, all, all the women who are participants to tell a story of a time they competed with a woman, um, if they had one, and then a time that they competed with a fafafine. And... Uh, we uh, did the exact same thing in southern Mexico. Uh, my lab mate Francisco Gomez, he, uh, he asked a bunch of Zapotec women these same series of questions. And so they were even higher. I think it was 60 or 70% of women reported that they'd kind of competed in some way with uh, uh, Mushe. And so now, using that, we can establish that it exists, and then uh, using their stories, we can pull out the features and say, well, when when women compete with women, here are the uh, common mate competition tactics, because there's an established literature on uh, what those tactics are. And then we can turn around and ask the same question of, when women compete with third gender males, what's happening? Um, like what, what are the forms and features of this competition? Right. Scott, what are a couple of those like meeting, mating, uh, like aspects of the, of the mating ritual or things that happen in those kind of competitions? So what does it look like? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. The, one of the ones that's really common among, uh, women, and this is women throughout the world is some sort of appearance enhancement. Um, we, there's a large body of evidence that indicates that, uh, men are typically attracted to youth and beauty and women are quite happy to um, try and enhance their beauty in various ways that, that there's some you know, cultural variation in the ways that they do it. But right. the underlying intent is often to uh, kind of magnify features that um, enhance either the look of youthfulness, the look of beauty. Um, and so there, there's this kind of appearance enhancement. Uh, so that's a, a pretty female typical mate competition tactic, um, mm-hmm. trying to attract the attention of men. And that and that can be very different depending on what culture you're in too, right? I know there's a lot of different uh, different cultures put a different emphasis on beauty, right? So things like the nose or the eyes, yes, or the figure of a woman, those all vary mm-hmm. based on culture. So you can see a lot of different enhancements, I imagine, based on where you're lo- where you're looking. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, even in that, like I said earlier, quite quite a while ago, like there there's this common theme. Um, and it, it tends to be trying to enhance mating relevant signals, things like waist to hip ratio or uh, overall health or um, kind of a youthful appearance. You're trying to make the hair look um, youthful and, and kind of lustrous or make the skin look smooth, things like that. But then how 
specifically that's elaborated there, there's all kinds of variation yeah on on how it's done um, another make competition tactic would be something like resource display. Um, we're pretty familiar with it in the West because men tend to do it a little bit more. Um, it's kind of like this conspicuous consumption. You know, he has a nice car, he has a nice watch, he's going to buy um, expensive things or, or fancy dinners for to try and woo women. Um, and so that would be a more male-typical um, tactic. And it's not that, that um, both sexes don't engage in both types of tactics. It's that kind of on average there, there is a little bit of separation um, in those things. And those same kind of tactics occur quite a bit in, uh, in these qualitative stories that I'm reading and, uh, and currently working on um, in both Samoa and in, in Mexico. Uh, the Mushe and the women will, or the Fafafine and the women, they'll both try and enhance their appearance in some way to try and attract men. Um, the the Mushe and the Fafafine in particular seem to try and give some sort of resources um, to uh, to men as well. Often it's quite small. It, it'll be something like buying him beer, um, which and then there's also <laughs> an element of trying to ply someone with with alcohol. Um, right. and that, that's, that's pretty that's not common. Culture specific. <laughs> yeah. And that's, it's not culture specific at all. Um, <laughs> but it, but it is a, a certain kind of a resource display. I mean, even a, a, a male in, in Western culture who asks a girl, well, can I buy you a drink? That that's in a small way. That's a resource display. Can I, Absolutely. can I buy you this thing? Um, hopefully this thing that's going to be a social lubricant, um, that yeah. will ultimately, uh, end in some sort of, you know, sexual interaction. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any unique uh, interac mating interactions that are occurring with with the Fafafini or the the Mouche or the uh, or the females as well? Yeah, uh, there there are. There definitely are. There's um, in in Samoa, um, and it happened in in Mexico as well. But in Samoa, lots of women kind of reported that they just backed down from competition with a fafafine because they didn't want to get in some sort of physical altercation. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Samoans are rather large. They're, they're a, a very hardy people. Uh, Samoan males in particular are, they are, are big. They are, they're dominant. Um, and so the fafafine are no exception because they're they're biological males, and so a lot of the fafafine are quite kind of formidable. And so I, I don't doubt or I don't blame uh, women for wanting to back down from a, a competition with them because they're they're genuinely fearing for their safety. Um, right. They they don't want some sort of physical altercation with uh, with uh, uh, fafafine. And a few women in Mexico said the same thing. You know, they don't they recognize uh, in both cultures they're they're not blind to the fact that these individuals are are biological males. They're under no illusion that they're they're biological males. Um, and so they're they're kind of rightfully scared. Uh, one of the things that I find or found really interesting in the in the Samoan context was that a lot of women were kind of nonplussed about their partner's uh, sexual interactions with fafafine. They would describe in very visceral detail how angry they would be at a woman if, like, if their husband cheated on them with a, a woman. But then with the the fafafine, they might say things like, "Oh, well, I I just tell him to shower before he came to bed." Mm. Um, so like the, it was weird, weirdly nonplussed by it. Um, yeah. I think potentially because it's not it's not necessarily a threat of um, like a stolen 
uh, partner. Like they, they know it's a little bit more casual. I, would you have expected that? I, we totally, well, I, I don't know. We, we kind of expected it, um, but kind of not. I, I think it even caught us off guard how much less concerned women were in Samoa about um, like infidelity that we would characterize as being homosexual in nature versus infidelity that's heterosexual in nature. Whereas the, the Zapotec women, they were about equal. Um, they were equally upset by, by thinking about um, either infidelity with another woman or infidelity with a mushe. So, so even there, there's some cultural variation. Okay, so, so I, have a, I have a follow-up for that, Scott. There, I'm interested, is, is the Zapotec was 50-50, you said, or, or the... Oh, for experiences of mate competition? Uh, no, that, that were, would be upset if they had sex with uh, a female versus a Fafafini or a Mushe. Yeah, yeah. So we, we asked the question um, two different ways. So we, we had these nine-point scales, one being not upset, nine being extremely upset. So they had this kind of quantitative rating of how upset they would be by either um, their partner having a one-night stand with another woman or their partner having a one-night stand with a, a mushe or a fafafine. And then we asked a forced choice question. You know, you had to pick which is worse. Okay. And Samoan women in the in the numeric rating, they were quite a bit lower. Um, you know, the average for a woman, uh, like infidelity with a woman, was just, you know eight and a half somewhere around there. Um, and then the average rating for infidelity with a fafafine was around four and a half. Um, okay. with, with, um, a much larger standard deviation. There was lots, lots of variation in uh, in women's responses, and then. That same question in in Mexico, um, it was both you know around an eight eight and a half for for both uh, of those instances uh, where oh, okay. they they said it, it's it's you know equally upsetting, um, and then the the forced choice numbers kind of bear that out as well. Uh, most Samoan women, uh, probably around seventy eighty percent, said infidelity with a woman would be worse, and then the the numbers were a little bit more equal in southern Mexico. Scott, just maybe before we head into our brain break, I'll ask uh, one more question. Is there a female version of this third gender? Right, right. So in, in Samoa, yes. Um, they are, they're called fafatama, uh, which means in the manner of a man. So it's kind of like the, the converse of, uh, of fafafine. They are... Uh, and still, I, I don't quite understand it. Um, I can't wrap my head around it. Uh, the Fafafine enjoy pretty widespread cultural and social acceptance. Um, and uh, no one kind of bats an eye at them. Um, they're, they're very normative. They're very integrated in the culture. Uh, the Fafatama, they're less so. Um, and, and people kind of will still speak derisively of them. They're, they're not as accepted and, and kind of there, there's this scoffing tone that will, will come across when people talk about the, the Fafatama, which is kind of interesting. I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's reached the status of being like a recognized third gender, but there, there is this category of, of individuals. And then there's, there's other, other cultures. I mean, in, in Thailand, there's the Toms and the Ds. So there are ethnographic 
specific examples of, of these kind of fourth gender categories where you have gynophilic females who are adopting these more masculine gender roles, uh, but we know a lot less about them. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier Doug Vanderlyn, who is at uh, the University of Toronto. He has collected a bunch of data in Thailand, and I'm very, very excited to um, sit down and have beers with him and talk about his data, because uh, I'll see him this summer at a, a conference, but also for, for that data to start to be published, because it's it's really valuable. We we don't uh, we don't have very much quantitative work on on any of that anywhere in the world. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. Last last question before we get into it. I mean, we talked a lot about what you're doing. What are the real real world implications for the work that you're doing here? I, and and you can answer this in a plethora of ways, I imagine. But I mean, what's the westernized implications and then global implications of the work that you're doing? Right. So I guess I'll I'll start with the like the the implication is kind of invoking a little bit of Weisenschaft, you know, knowledge for the sake of knowledge, mm -hmm. which I, I tend to think is a nice thing, but people usually want some sort of practical application. Um, one of the practical applications that I, I think is really important is uh, there, there's some work that was done by uh, my supervisor, Paul, and, uh, and his then um, postdoctoral student, Doug Vanderlyn, showing that this third gender form of male androphilia, that's actually the ancestral form. Um, so that, that's kind of the expression of the trait that existed prehistorically. Um, and, and the more masculine gay guys, that, that's a, a more recent um, kind of cultural phenomenon. And so if we can track the ways that uh, these third gender males and uh, women interact and compete, that might give us a little bit of insight into uh, one potential pressure that uh, an evolutionary pressure that shaped the mating psychology of women. So that's kind of an interesting evolutionary implication and, you know, still is going to be relevant in, in these cultures with third gender males. Yeah. As far as a more Western implication, it, it would be an acknowledgement that this can and does happen. And I suspect that if we're going to find it in the West, and I, I think it happens all the time, Typically, the, the expression of intersexual mate competition, so mate competition that occurs across the sexes, is going to occur with a bisexual female and a heterosexual male. So you can imagine some situation where there is a, a bisexual woman, because uh, we know the prevalence of bisexuality among women is, is rather high, uh, perhaps as high as 10% in, in kind of some form. And so you can imagine a situation where a straight guy and a lesbian are both competing for the romantic and sexual attention of a bisexual female, and they both might have a very real chance. It's not kind of a, an unknown, it's not a hopeless situation, you know, e either of them could ultimately win out. And so that's just my hunch. We uh, would have to obviously examine that empirically and, and start to document these things, but that would be a, a Western application of, of this kind of, uh, of knowledge and, and this kind of theoretical thinking. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Scott, for sharing all of your knowledge with us uh, and allowing our listeners to kind of glean a bit of insight into the work that you're doing. With that, though, let's head into our brain break. We'll refill our glasses, uh, take a moment, enjoy some tunes, and on the other side, we'll get into some myths and misconceptions and talk a little bit more about this, that, and the other thing. So, 
We'll see you then. Brain Break, that was a track by Manchester Orchestra. Uh, Scott, we're going to kick it off here with myths and misconceptions. What myth do you have for us today? All right, so um, this is a, a myth that we run into all the time. Um, and it's not so much a myth as like, I, I definitely understand where people are coming from when, when they ask this question, but we do lots of comparisons. Um, you know, equating in some ways uh, the Fafafine or the Mushe to gay guys in the West. So lots of studies in the West will compare gay guys to straight men, and then lots of studies, you know, in Samoa, we're comparing Fafafine to straight men, and people don't tend to have a problem with that, but they do tend to have a problem with uh, our suggestion that, um, you know, a, a gay man and a fafafine, you know, this is the same biological trait. It's male androphilia. Um, and it's just the expression of the trait is being modified by, uh, by the cultural context. So 
on the face of it, I understand people's kind of reservation about um, acknowledging that that might be a possibility because they look so different. Uh, and, and people tend to want to compare Fafafine or Mushe to transgender women in, uh, in the West. But as I said, uh, the prevalence rate of Fafafine or Mushe is drastically, drastically higher than the prevalence rate of transgender uh, women in, uh, in the West. By a uh, quite a, a huge margin. So that's one key mm -hmm. piece of information that says, you know, we can compare straight uh, or we can compare gay men to these fafafine or these uh, mushe uh, is the prevalence rate. It tends to occur in somewhere between two and five percent of the uh, the population. Uh, one of the other clues that we get about uh, being able to compare them is actually from those same studies that kind of get at prevalence rate. And that's looking at the way male androphilia clusters in families. Uh, if you're a male androphile, um, if you're a gay guy, you tend to have more gay male relatives. Um, often it tends to be on the mother's side, although that's a little bit inconsistent. Uh, but you do, it tends to kind of run in families. And we find the exact same thing in uh, Samoa, we find the exact same thing in southern Mexico, where it, it clusters in families in, in these ways. Um, the other key feature, uh, and it, it's kind of a little bit of a no-brainer, is they're both um, like both gay guys and these third-gender males. They're exclusively androphilic. They're they're only attracted to masculine men. Um, and so that, that's a, another piece of information. And then there's other biodemographic uh, correlates. They come, tend to come from bigger families. Their mothers uh, tend to, to reproduce a little bit more. And we observe things like the fraternal birth order effect in, in both um, gay male populations and in uh, Fafafine. And uh, it's not published yet, but it, it will be in, uh, in the Mushe. So the fraternal birth order effect is the finding that for each biological um, older brother that a male has, the probability that he is androphilic goes up uh, a little bit. It goes up about 33% for every biological male older brother. So sisters don't matter, younger siblings don't matter, adopted siblings don't matter. It's only biological uh, older brothers. In, in that sense, we're talking about very low prevalence rates of, uh, being, androphilic, of being androphilic male. Yes. So if the percentages are two to five percent, and you have a thirty-three percent increased chance, doesn't mean that there's thirty-three percent chance that you will be androphilic, correct? Yes, correct. No, and then I'm glad I'm glad you pointed that out. So it would be, you know, you have a thirty-three percent increased chance, say over two percent. So it would be a little bit over two percent. And then if you had two older brothers, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of three-ish percent. Um, if you have yeah. three, like it, it kind of goes up from there. So the, the question that everyone wants mm -hmm. to know is, well, how many older brothers um, until I have a coin flip? It's like, what, when do I get a 50-50 chance um, of, of this fraternal birth order effect resulting in male androphilia? And you'd have to assume a linear effect. Uh, and for really dorky reasons, there, there's evidence, like it might not be a <laughs> linear effect. Um, but you'd need 10 older brothers. Right. You can't, you can't just assume that having 50 brothers will increase your chances by 33% each brother that yeah. you have. Yeah. That's and, not and, how these things work. And the, the older brother effect is just one of many potential causes of male androphilia. Um, so it, it's, it's, uh, it's an environmental effect because it has to do with uh, the mother's uterine environment. But it, it's, it's an environmental effect that's entirely biological. 
sexual orientation and gender and sexuality are not always easily translatable across cultures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, like, you can't, you can't assume, um, like you, you need very precise terminology. You need to talk and think through these things in a very precise manner. And you can't assume just because something looks different that it is different. And on the same hand, you can't assume just because something looks similar that it shares a similar root. You, you need better evidence than, than either similarity or dissimilarity to draw those conclusions. Precisely. And I, I find this funny because I think this myth was actually something that came up earlier in our conversation when I said, well, it, the Fafafini kind of seemed like what, what our closest comparison from a Western-centric approach would be transgendered individuals. Mm-hmm. And so you, you are essentially myth-busting what I've already said in this episode, but yeah, uh, you shouldn't yeah. be necessarily comparing or assuming that their similarities are direct comparison or they're not direct comparisons they're just similarities but they're not the yeah. same thing I, I guess the the cleanest way to to put it and i'm glad you brought that up again um the, the cleanest way to put it is you you probably are capturing in samoa the among the fafafine individuals who in any cultural context would uh, identify as transgender they, they would potentially be so so feminine that they you know identify as as transgender um but you're also capturing all of these other males um, who are same-sex attracted, but in another culture would uh, just grow up to be gay. So the, the thought experiment that we usually describe it as is if you took a young child in, in Samoa who was kind of identified based on their, their more feminine behavior as a kid, that, you know, this is a fafafine, and that tends to be how they're acknowledged, that like people see them that way. If you took a young fafafine and transplanted them, into Canada, and then you took a young male here who uh, was was going to grow up to be gay, say there was some way to be certain of it, and you transplanted right. that male to Samoa, the Canadian who'd been transplanted to Samoa would probably grow up to be a fafafine, and the uh, fafafine, the young child who was transplanted from Samoa to the Canadian context, would probably grow up to be gay male. Right, yeah. But... For sure, to be sure, you, you well, I mean, in the end, you really can't be sure. It's it's you're assuming these things based on the fact that there are these cultural differences, but there are similarities and enough similarities that you think that, based on the culture that they have been raised in and that they've grown up in, that they would be pushed towards those kind of uh, identities. Uh, yes. In the end. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. It's it's an important myth to to keep in mind for people that. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't happen often that you're thinking cross-culturally on your daily, day-to-day basis if you're, if you're really not engaging with other cultures often, uh, but it's, mm-hmm. it's something to keep in mind, uh, be it sexual orientation, uh, sexuality in general, or other topics where you're thinking about being culturally sensitive uh, about the way that people identify or the way that they, they interact with others. Mm-hmm. I, yep. I, I like what you just said. You're saying good things. <laughs> that's a first for the show yeah. too here it is no one, no one, none, no one else is liking what you guys say <laughs> oh well it's hard to it's hard to judge nobody tells specifically uh, me no <laughs> people are kind to our face yeah. but. <laughs> um so scott uh is there anything that you would like to address in the myth section? Is there another myth that might be prevalent that you'd like to talk about or have we um, covered it? Uh, right. So, Those well, cool, I Those mean, 
you guys can feel free to shoot this down and be like, no, you have to, you have to calm the hell down, Scotty. You can't, you can't bring that up. But one of one of the myths that is perpetually irritating to me is that gender is a social construct. Um, oh, and that, fantastic. It, not not to say that gender isn't socially influenced or culturally influenced, but to say that it to say that it's a social construct and it's only a social construct is wholesale horseshit. Like it's it's just one of these myths that needs to die. Um, Ben, ben talked about... Is that yours? Did you create that terminology? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's got to be an Albertan thing. <laughs> that's got to be an Albertan thing. <laughs> that, it very so, okay. well might be an Albertan thing. <laughs> okay, okay, so... Continue continue your rant, though. Let, let's let him Yeah, yeah. I, I'm loving the rant. Well, no, so, I'll, I'll tone it down. I won't call it wholesale horse shit. I'll be much kinder. That's going to be in the episode <laughs> in some form or other. <laughs> yeah. So... You, you've identified this myth that uh, gender is socially constructed, culturally constructed as, as being false. Uh, what is the truth then? What is gender? Right. And that, so that's a, a question that is, you know, someone smarter than me has to answer. Um, and, and someone, you know, more knowledgeable than, than me has to answer. Um, so because we do cross-cultural work and in particularly we work with uh, third gender males. We, we talk constantly about how culture can moderate the expressions or, or modify the expressions of gender. Um, so you take these young feminine androphilic males who, um, in a Samoan context, will grow up to be fafafine, and in a Western context would grow up to be gay, the culture is in some way modifying their gender expression. So uh, there tends to be a lot of what's called straight acting in the West, where, where gay guys kind of butch up. They, they um, downplay their femininity. Whereas that same pressure doesn't exist in, uh, in a place like Samoa, and, and fafafine are allowed to just express their femininity. So it, it can almost exaggerate it. Whereas the femininity among males will be suppressed somewhat in uh, in a western uh, cultural context so some people will will point to things like the the variations on on gender and they'll say see look this means that gender is just a social construct um, that it's entirely the product of socialization and it's entirely the product of um, kind of cultural norms and and then often there will be some sort of mention of the patriarchy at some point in there it's there's there's always those <laughs> those kind of consistent buzzwords um, so not brain buzzwords buzzwords um, <laughs> so in in kind of response to that i think there there are some pretty widely uh, established sex differences in behavior and in cognition men and women are more similar than they are different but where they are different it's often very interesting um and in in most individuals in you know 99 percent of of individuals they're gender aligns with their biological sex. Um, and so uh, it, it's biologically influenced. Uh, we, we know that uh, s 
kind of social and, and cultural forces can moderate or, or alter the expressions of gender or what is expected of, of a masculine individual or a feminine individual. But um, that, saying that, that gender is socially influenced and it's culturally influenced, and we, we say these things all the time, the, the ways that culture can influence uh, gender and gender expression. Um, but to, to make that logical leap and say, well, that that means that uh, gender is entirely a social construct is, I, I think, somewhat disingenuous. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. it's a, a leap that kind of goes far beyond the data. Uh, and it, in, in my opinion, it tends to be a leap that's made for ideological reasons, not, uh, uh, not one that's based on evidence. Right. You can't experimentally or... Like you just cannot prove experimentally that it's it's caused by one thing, uh, and and the influences are the important part. You're saying it's biologically influenced or socially influenced is the key terminology. And I think a lot of a lot of myths and misconceptions come from the fact that people like to make very polarizing statements or causal statements that are not accurate, just because it it does kind of have that philosophical or. Um, that underlying meaning that, that people are looking for. Yeah, so Scott, if, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, you're saying, yeah, culture does play a role, but it plays a very small role, and it's, it's impractical and disingenuous in some ways to be assigning uh, causation to that, to that value due to how small that, that relationship really is. Yeah, is that yeah, I fair? think... That's a, a it plays pretty, a big role too, right? Like not not necessarily a small role, does it? Is it necessarily a small role? Or I, is I it... think in in most well, people it doesn't play the dominant role. Um, right. In in most people, their kind of masculinity or their femininity is not primarily the product of their socialization or the broader culture. Um, right. I, I think in the large majority of people, uh, it is the product of their biology. Uh, there are individuals for whom that's the exception. Um, and there's there are overlapping distributions um, of traits of masculinity and of femininity, um, but you know, two of the largest psychological sex differences that are observed um, are in gender identity. Most biological males identify as men, and most biological females identi- identify as women. Um, and then the second largest sex difference uh, that's been established psychologically is in sexual orientation. Most biological males are attracted to females, and most biological females are attracted to males. And and these these distributions, the the way that 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 shakes out at a societal level, um, they're, they're absolutely massive, massive, massive sex differences, where where there is almost no overlap, if any, um, between the distributions. Um, and I, I think sometimes that, that gets a little bit lost, um, because people wrongly equate, you know, prevalence with, um, you know, that if, if something is more common, then that means that we should care about it or, or give, you know, sexual and gender minorities rights. And I, I think that's potentially the wrong way to look at it. Like it, it doesn't really matter how common or uncommon it is. Um, we can still look at something and say, yes, this is a human being who deserves the same dignity and compassion and respect and human rights as any other human being. And, and that, shouldn't be uh kind of predicated on their prevalence absolutely yeah just because it's more 
prevalent in the or there's more people that are affected by it doesn't mean the individuals that are affected by something should not should be uh ignored exactly exactly and we we can have you know uh humane compassionate um humanist responses to to all of them yeah just because 10 out of the 100 people in the room are affected by something doesn't mean you have to ignore those 10 people like that's that's not how the world should should run right yeah yeah it's 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 a great point so that that's yeah, it's, my it's that's my point. rant among among many. <laughs> no, well, we appreciated good. it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing it with us, um, Scott. We ask our our guests share with us any mind blowing fact that they've got, not necessarily related to their work. Yours is particularly fascinating, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Right. So so mine. So I I didn't start in in sex research. Um, I'm I'm actually not even sure that I would stay in in sex research. You know, if if my career continues and I I, I remain in academia, um, and and I was before doing sex research much more of a generalist. I I just generally liked psychology, which is part of why it's really fun to to listen to to um your podcast because you you talk to different kinds of people. Um, so I I, I enjoy that. So my like mind blowing fact Thanks, is that there's this uh, there's this little island called Saint Kitts, um, and on Saint Kitts there's uh, these vervet monkeys, and I, I actually don't think the vervets uh, are are kind of indigenous to to the region. I'm pretty sure that they were a transplant. Um, so so Saint Kitts <laughs> is kind of by uh, Puerto Rico. It's in it's in that uh, kind of neighborhood. So in okay. in this island. Um, there's lots of resorts, and these vervet monkeys will go and steal alcohol from the patrons at the resorts, and they, they they'll get drunk. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I it's hilarious. You can you can YouTube it, and you can watch the monkeys at St. Kitts, and they like they fall all over each other because um, they're drunk. Um, they apparently they don't censure their leaders like they're they're kind of the dominance hierarchy if you're the top and you spend most of your day drunk like you don't necessarily suffer the ill effects of that uh some people have said well you know unlike in humans and i think i don't know have you met a lot of politicians um because i I grew up in in the 90s in alberta where ralph klein was our premier and he spent i'm sure at least half of his tenure as premier sauced um so uh, there there's these monkeys and and um one of the most interesting graphs that I've I've ever seen in in any sort of psychological study is the amount of use in in the population of of these monkeys uh, the amount of use of alcohol the degree is roughly normally distributed and it looks a lot like the um the bell curve that we observe among human beings where you know there's there's some really heavy problematic users there's lots of people in the middle who are you know maybe high maybe moderate maybe light drinkers and then there's this proportion of of individuals who totally just don't drink at all they, they don't really touch the stuff and it it actually maps on quite well um to like human human use patterns so i think it's fascinating um it's not yeah. my kind of research that i i do so if i am wrong and someone listening says well that's not true at all i'm sorry but let me have this because i think it's neat um <laughs> and yeah that's my that's my outside of the wheelhouse fact that i think is pretty cool if there are researchers that are specialists in ver- the vervet monkeys habitual alcohol consumption 
please contact us. We'd love to have <laughs> yeah. you on and we could do a round table with Scott. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Scott, there's one more thing that we didn't really get to before the, uh, the use of pronouns for third mm-hmm. gender individuals. Did you, did you address that? I, in, I in, didn't. Yeah. Um, would you, would you it, want to address actually, it? It's up to I mean, you. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really interesting because we, uh, and as you kind of highlight to us is that Western cultures were very, there's a lot of conversation about use of pronouns mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I'll preface it by saying like, I think that you should like, it's a kind of a polite thing to refer to someone in the way that they would like to be referred. Um, Certainly. And I, I think that makes sense. I mean, I, I refer to you guys by your names because that's your name. I don't call you something different. Um, so I like it, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so I, I think it's a polite thing to, to refer to someone as, as their name, um, or, or, and, and, you know, chosen pronouns, whatever, uh, where it gets a little trickier for me or where I, I, I'm not sure what to think is with, um, kind of the, the gender, uh, neutral pronouns, the Z and Zer and Zim. I've never actually met someone who preferred those pronouns, which I'm kind of relieved because I, I don't know if I'd be able to keep it straight and I'm not trying to offend anyone. Um, like I'm not setting yeah. out to, to do that. Of course. Um, so one of the things that kind of bugs me is, you know, someone trying to say, well, not using these, these pronouns would be tantamount to violence. And I, it's so weird to me because in, in my world, violence is violence. Um, like if I, if I hit someone in the face, that's violence. And if I mm-hmm. have an, an infelicity of prose or, or, you know, I misspeak, uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I just, I just made a mistake and I'm, I'm sorry. Um, so that all prefaces what I'm about to say about the um, Fafafine, and it's true also of, of the Mushe, is that they themselves will flip back and forth between masculine and feminine pronouns. People in the culture describing them will flip back and forth between masculine and feminine pronouns. Um, and no one gets particularly bent out of shape. Um, people are pretty chill about it. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I, I think like no one really has that ax to grind. Um, but you, you tend to like, if you're, um, because there, there's lots of variation in the presentation of fafafine. So if, if I was interacting with a really feminine fafafine, of course I would, you know, it, it's, it feels natural to refer to her as she um, and, and use yeah. pronouns like her. Um, whereas more, more masculine uh, fafafine or more masculine mouche, then it, it's, it's either unclear, uh, you could just ask them, or um, you, you could use a masculine pronoun. But again, people aren't... Um, people aren't getting super bent out of shape about it. They're, they're just not that concerned and they themselves will flip back and forth. And then there, there aren't any um, kind of specific pronouns, not in any culture that I'm aware of um, outside of the West. There's no specific pronouns that are attributed to or ascribed to these third gender individuals. They, they tend to uh, use pronouns that either straddle the binary, you know, you can use male or female ones, or they just pick one. You know, if, if you're a really feminine individual then people are probably going to refer to you as she right i feel like it's a, it's such an interesting topic i've i've kind of grappled with it myself with uh with addressing people accurately with with the appropriate pronouns and it's it really speaks to the lack of uh uh 
fluidity within our our language that we can't really just create a word for a non like gender it's really hard to catch that non-gender specific pronoun like like you said z or z or zer that it just doesn't seem right and no one really can, seems to buy into it yeah yeah and so it's and- hard when you're trying to like you really don't want to offend anyone and that's never anyone's intention to offend mm-hmm. directly right by mm-hmm. by using a in, inaccurate pronoun but depending on the culture as you're saying it's it's an interesting fact and it's 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 really something to kind of uh to sit on and think about is yep. the fact that some cultures just don't get upset about it when you when you call yeah. someone if someone calls me a she i'd say no actually my name's i i prefer to be a, called him mm-hmm. uh or 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 he that's fine, but some, but within our culture and within different cultures, it, it can be really something of contention and, and, and can really cause a lot of stress with individ- individuals. Yeah, and it more more and more, like, the, the um, singular they makes a lot of sense to me. Like, when I read it, nothing goes off in my brain thinking, oh, that, that's really weird. Um, it just, like, that's a, a logical way to refer to someone, you know, and, and not have to put any sort of gender on them. So I, I think that's the way that things will go because it's more linguistically natural. Um, and I, I hope so because, like you say, uh, I, I think most people are not seeking to offend. Um, they're, they're just trying to grapple with and understand, well, how, how do I proceed now, um, you know, trying to treat someone with some respect. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Like, it, I know it's the structure <laughs> of the podcast. Like, you're supposed to ask me questions. But, like conversationally as a socialized human i feel like an asshole right now because i just <laughs> talked for like two hours and you guys didn't no, say no, anything please don't. but you're you're the expert this is this is the thing right you're the expert in this area we don't have as much to contribute we have questions because yeah. your your work's interesting but you are the expert and we like to we like to hear that from you so we're glad that you actually talked your our ears off no oh, it was it was a lot of fun Scott, thanks, uh, for, thanks for having me Oh, uh, our absolute pleasure. Scott, why don't you give us and our listeners uh, any contact information that you might uh, like them to have? Right. So you can email me. My The email that I usually use is semeninas at gmail.com, which is S-E-M-E-N-Y-N-A-S at gmail.com. Uh, you could also find me on the Twitters, although I am not very good at Twitter. Uh, and my handle is at Scotty Semi. So at Scotty with two T's and then Semi is S-E-M-E. Um, so yeah, I uh, hang out on Twitter sometimes. Uh, I share some things. Um, you could call me and uh, or you could email me or Twitter me and tell me I'm an idiot or whatever you would like to do. No, it's it's been a pleasure. Thank you for thank you for coming on. Uh, we'll make sure that all of that information is readily available on brainbuzzpodcast.com, uh, as well as on Twitter, Instagram, uh, and anywhere else that you might find information related to this podcast. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, uh, please go ahead, subscribe, like, comment, tell friends, tell family, tell colleagues. Uh, if you think that you'd be a good guest on the show, which uh, we actually do on occasion consider, uh, yeah, please reach out to us. More than um, on occasion, a rare occasion. We're always looking for good guests. So with that, the long rambling wind off, we'll say thank you. Uh, until next time, this has been Brain Boss Podcast. I'm Kyle. Oh, and I'm Drake. <laughs> and uh, we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.